Hello, and welcome to City Hope Church. Today, Pastor Peter Pilt will be starting a new sermon series, The Power of Prayer. We've been in a, in a series called A Short History of Everything. And I sat down to prep on Wednesday, which is my normal prep day, and uh, looked at all different angles of how I would go through, because we were going to go through the New Testament, and uh, spent all day Wednesday wrestling with it, then spent all day Thursday wrestling with it, got to about uh, two o'clock on Thursday and thought, it's not working. And so I abandoned the series. Uh, it hasn't happened very often in my ministry life where I go to prepare, prep a sermon and I'm just at every point hit, hit a, a roadblock. Uh, so I'm taking that as, as, as a God thing and uh, we're going to move on to our next series which is prayer and the power of prayer. And I noted with interest that yesterday in Canberra it was the uh, National Prayer Gathering uh, where they prayed down in our parliament, uh, parliament house uh, for our nation. So I thought uh, maybe there's something in it where, where God's aligning churches for prayer right now. And so I want to jump in and preach a little bit about prayer. One of the uh, really, there's not a lot of questions that are recorded that the disciples asked Jesus. But one of them that, he did, that the disciples did say was, teach us how to pray. We've we got to know how to pray. And I think as a, as a Christian, that's got to be one of the questions that, that, uh, should be on, on our spiritual journey and that, that we learn how to pray. Now, I don't think it's all that complicated, but what I, what I think is to, to, to attach the faith uh, to it and, and it's, it's important. But uh, I want to I start off by going through some f- uh, famous prayers. And really, prayer is simply talking to God. It's, it's, and, and we don't need to use a whole stack of, Long spiritual jargon words. I'm going to pray. A, I'm going to play a, a clip of a prayer of a pastor praying at a NASCAR opening in in the states. And uh, there's not a lot of spiritual jargon there, but it's a genuine, heartfelt prayer. But here's a, here's a couple of famous prayers. St. Francis of Assisi. It'll be on the screen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are awake to eternal life. What a powerful prayer. Here's a prayer by St. Patrick. St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland and his, uh, his uh, standard, his flag forms part of the Union Jack. Uh, so I love the fact that as part of our, part of our flag uh, is a man uh, that obviously had a great relationship with God uh, in St. Patrick. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. So there's there's two older famous prayers and there's a, a, a prayer that was prayed by a pastor called Joe Wright. Uh, opening the Kansas Senate. 
Now, this prayer has gone you know, viral and no doubt you would have got it at some point in, in your email inbox. Uh, but it's a very powerful prayer. And he starts off and he says, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word does. Uh, your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We confessed. We confess. We have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We've covered our neighbours' possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honoured values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless us. Bless these men and women who have been sent to direct us in the centre of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Saviour, Jesus Christ. At that point, a lot of the senators got up and walked out, uh, offended by the prayer. Uh, which is which is sad. Who's who's heard that prayer before? Who's seen that prayer before? Oh, not as viral as what I thought it was. Clearly, here's a uh, here's a clip of a pastor praying at NASCAR, and I just love the fact that this is. Now that's a prayer. That's a prayer. I think, I think there's some ways that you probably shouldn't pray. And I'm going to play a clip now out of a movie called Talladega Nights. Uh, and this is, this is a cleaned up version of the prayer, uh, but uh, this is probably how you shouldn't pray. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but let's watch. Just, just wrong, just wrong on every level, every, just, just every level. So, all right, as we open the word, let's pray. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, no. Father God, we ask you today, Lord, as we open the word, God, that you anoint me with the Holy Spirit, Father, to, to speak a word right now, Father, about prayer. Father, let's be inspired in our, our faith journey around prayer this morning. Father, we just thank you today. Lord, we, we, we ask your blessing, Father, on our time around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is... Uh, one of probably the, the, the most, one of the most well-known prayers in the Bible is, there's obviously a few others, the Lord's Prayer uh, would, be, would be one. But Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance. And David had, uh, had committed adultery, had an affair with a woman called Bathsheba. And for a year, he hid the sin. In fact, he organised for Bathsheba's husband to be murdered uh, so that he could then marry Bathsheba. And for a year... The, the sin was hidden. David thought that he got away with it. He just continued. But for a year, he never went to the temple. In other words, he, he was backslidden of heart in, in the fact that he knew that he'd sinned. He knew that he was covering up his sin. And so he was kind of staying away from God. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and says to David, I want to tell you a story. He says there was a, there was a man and he had a thousand sheep. And uh, he, he looked after the sheep. He was a farmer. And next door to his farm was a, another man. 
And he had one sheep. And he loved that sheep. He looked after that sheep. He cared for the sheep. He, he, he did everything he could to make that sheep just enjoy life. Loved the sheep. The next door farmer, the thousand sheep farmer, had a guest, a special guest coming. And he wanted to, as the guest arrived, he wanted to kill a sheep and provide a beautiful lamb roast. So he went next door. He didn't go to his thousand sheep. He went next door and took the one sheep farmer's sheep. He took that sheep and he killed it and he served it to his friend. And David rose up in anger and he said, I will make sure that man dies. Just so righteously angry. The fact that the thousand sheep farmer had killed the one sheep of the one sheep farmer. And Nathan the prophet says, David, you're that man. David had a whole stack of wives, a whole stack of concubines, but he went and stole the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's 37 mighty men. And when, David, when Nathan said, David, you're that man, scales fell from David's spiritual eyes and he suddenly realised how bankrupt he had become. And so he sat down and he prayed and penned Psalm 51. And we're going to read it and then I'm going to go through it verse by verse, but I just want to read through it first up. So this is David. David's prayer, his heartfelt prayer of repentance. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make, you will want to make, you, sorry, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These are God you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then you shall offer bulls on your altar, or they shall offer bulls on your altar. So I want to just go through the first 12 verses or so of, of this particular psalm. And the reality is that when David realised just how much he'd sinned, his sin terrified him. And 
We should be terrified of sin because sin separates us from God. Sin brings judgment upon us by, from a holy God. And that's why we, for, for me, having communion every, church, every Sunday in church is such a big value for, for me as a pastor is because it constantly reminds us that we have grace, constantly reminds us we're cleansed by the blood, constantly reminds us, as Caleb said this morning, that we have a relational God that understands us, that journeys with us, and that, that we can come uh, each communion time and break bread together, uh, experience the blood, the, 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 the wine and the bread representing the blood and the, the body of Jesus Christ, and we can say, Jesus, I want to keep a short account. I want to be holy and righteous because of your holiness and righteousness. So David starts off, and the first 12 verses are David's confession. And then the last seven are his anticipatory gratitude and, and how he's going to live out the forgiveness that God has given to him. So he starts off and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. And David, David firstly appeals here to the mercy of God. Before he even mentions his sin, it's like, I've got to come, God, I've got to meet you at your mercy. Before I even tell you what I've done, I'm going to appeal straight to your mercy. And there's a, there's a graduation of, of appeal here. David starts off by saying, according to your mercy. Then he says, according to your loving kindness. And then he uh, says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. The multitude of your tender mercies. It was like that, as if Dave was saying, I need the multitude of your tender mercies because I have a, a glimpse of the multitude of my sin. But isn't it awesome that there is more tender mercies of God than we have of sin? And I say that because grace, never, grace doesn't have a limit. Grace doesn't run out. Grace covers us and cleanses us from our sin. And David is, is, is appealing here to the, to the mercy, to the loving kindness, to the multitude of tender mercies. And then he says, blot out my transgressions. And the sense is not here of a, of a book of sin and, and someone's going through with liquid paper and blotting it out. The sense of the word blot out my transgression is, is a sense of a, of a dirty bowl that is completely and utterly washed clean. The sense of blotting out of a book, it's, it's still there, it's just covered up. But the whole idea of, of, of that we are a, a, a bowl and, and, and we're stained with sin, but God comes in because of the multitude of His tender mercies and washes the bowl completely clean. I loved when I was preaching a bit on Romans uh, a few months ago and I talked about justification. That, we are, that, that it's just as if we'd never sinned, that our innocence is restored, that, that the power of the blood of Jesus is so powerful that our innocence is restored, that, that we have the innocence, as, as it were, of Adam and Eve before they sinned. That God's power to cleanse us is absolute. And David is appealing to that power. And he says, blot out my transgressions. There's a, there's a sense here of David taking ownership of his sin. Repentance, true repentance of sin is, requires that we take ownership of, of sin. 
you know, one of the challenges I think we have in Australia at the moment is uh, we, we have a bit of a victim mentality. We, we want to blame everybody else and everything else for where we are and what we do. We want to blame our parents or we want to blame the, 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 the government or we want to we, we, we blame where we grew up or the lack of opportunities or the, the school we went to. Or, or we, and we want to blame everybody else rather than taking some ownership for what we do. And, and David could have played the victim card. But he didn't. He took ownership. He said, blot out my transgressions. Now, he could have played the victim card because as the story goes, all his men were out to war. David was uh, on the, the walking in the, in the, on the roof of his castle in the cool of the day, about four o'clock in the afternoon. Bathsheba is taking a bath in plain sight of the castle. There is some sense of potential entrapment. Bathsheba would have known that David would have had a habit of walking on the castle in the afternoon. So Bathsheba has timed her, 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 her bath to coincide with the king's daily habit. And she didn't close the Venetians. <laughs> and so David could have said, God, I want you to blot out, blot out the sin that I committed that Bathsheba caused me to commit. But he owns it. Blot out my transgressions, blot out my sin. Verse 2 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It, it literally here in the, in the Hebrew, it says, multiply to wash me. David is saying that I've, I've laid down in the, in the cesspool of sin for so long that I'm stained, that the sin, that the, the, the crimson sin uh, stain is so ingrained in my life now that God is not going to be taken away with one washing. But God, wash me, multiply to wash me until that sin stain is gone. Caleb last week while I was preaching in Caloundra was preaching about the stain of sin and that God comes and he washes us, takes away the stain of sin. David is, is saying exactly that. Take the stain of sin from me. Verse 3 says, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Here David now is acknowledging actually the plurality of his sins because up to that point it's, it's been my sin but now it's the plurality, it's, it's, it's the sin I'm acknowledging, my transgressions, there's, there's a plurality of sins here and, and he's saying I, I want to I make full confession of them, I want to get right with you. And if you have a look at this verse, it's very much I, my, my, it, David's very focused on himself and he's not saying that I'm, I'm come here and I'm, I'm repenting for the sin of the whole world, it's about me right now. And it's, it's as if that there's a sense in this, in this prayer, as if David's standing alone in the whole human race, that every other human is not a sinner, but David stands alone before God as the only sinner in the world, crying out and throwing himself on the tender mercies of God. Verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David was so bent on committing sin that the majesty and presence of God that David had, had known as he wrote uh, a lot of the Psalms, as he, he sat there as a shepherd boy and written Psalm 23 and, 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 and you go through Psalms and we get so much of our understanding of the character of God through David's Psalms. 
So David knew the character of God. But his knowledge of the character of God didn't stop him from, from, from sinning. And so he's saying, hey, God against you and you only have I sinned. For a thief to steal something whilst in the presence of the judge is the greatest form of arrogance. And for David to know the presence of God and to commit the sin with Bathsheba was supremely arrogant of David. But he comes here now and he's saying, I've, I've sinned against you, God, you and you only. And he's saying that he can present no argument against divine justice. You may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I've sinned, God. Your, your judgment on me is a fair thing. It's a just thing. You're a just God. But then he goes on, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And this is, this is not a, a slight against David's mother. David, David's not having to go against his poor mother. But rather, in the completion of his confession, he's saying that sin was inbuilt into my life. There's an acknowledgement here that, that, that we're, we're all born broken because of Adam and Eve. And he's saying, hey, in, in sin, I, I, I was born, and, and the, the, it's, it's like the, the, the absolute confession coming to an end. He's, he's saying, you know, even as I was born, I was born into sin. Verse 6, he says, says, Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in a hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. God's not interested in outward displays of repentance. God's interested in inward purity. He cares not for the pretense of purity, but always looks at the heart. And for me, when it comes to prayer, one of the key things about prayer is what's, what's going on inside here. Not, not the eloquence of your words or your command of the English language or your command of the King James English. And one guy, when Mel and I were just starting to date, there was one guy we had in the church and he'd always, uh, always pray in uh, old King James English. Oh, thus saith the Lord, my fatherest, and all the is, and thou comest before thee. And, and it, it certainly sounded poetic. But the effectiveness of our prayer is not based on our command of the English language. The effectiveness of our prayer is based on the focus of our heart. And David here is focusing his heart. Verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David is alluding here to the purification ritual of a leper. When in Leviticus 14 and verse 52, when, when a leper was cleansed, there was, a, there was a ritual they had to go through in order to be kind of certifiably cleansed. And David's basically saying, hey, I, I, want, I want to be certifiably cleansed. He's saying, give me the ritual, the reality which legal ceremony symbolized. I, I need a tick box. I need a, I, I need a clean bill of spiritual health. But then he says, wash me whiter than snow. Now that's, that's a difficult thing, to be whiter than snow. 
White, snow is white within, without, and around, throughout, all over. Snow is white. But David is saying here that the cleansing power of God can make the repentant sinner whiter than snow. That when you have been touched by the tender mercies of God and He washes your life and blots out your transgressions, your life is whiter than snow. The purity, that the, the innocence and the purity of your life is beyond anything that we can actually picture in this present world. Because you can't really picture anything whiter than white snow. But David's saying, hey, that God, when you come and wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. My, my, my purity, my holiness, my righteousness will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Maybe hear joy and gladness, double joy, joy and gladness. Not just one, but both. Because I'm broken and you're going to repair me. You're going to put these bones back together, these broken bones. You're going to put them back together and I'm going to be able to rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, verse 9. Blot out all my iniquities. If God cannot hide his face from our sin then he must forever hide us from his presence. A position of most dire consequence. So David is saying, hide your face from my sin, but not your face from me. And then he goes on in verse 10, famous verse, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David is saying that sin has so much destroyed him that the Creator must be called in. That his heart has been so damaged and polluted by sin that it's beyond repair. That he needs to come in, there needs to be a heart transplant and the Creator of the universe must come in. God creating me a clean heart. Rebuild what sin has destroyed. Rebuild what sin has stained. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11 says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had seen what happened to King Saul. King Saul was the king and uh, the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul. And he was tormented day and night by an evil spirit. And David saw that. David was, was part of that. In fact, David was employed by the king when he was just a shepherd boy to come and play for the king because while he played worship, Saul wasn't tormented. So David knew very much what happens when the Holy Spirit is withdrawn. And so he's crying out, saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I, th- I-, I thank God that we live in a different era. The Bible says that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is taken from people these days. I believe the Bible warns us not to quench the Holy Spirit. I think we can offend the Holy Spirit. I think we can be, have, have blockages to the Holy Spirit. But we live in a different era because we live in an era of grace. Verse 12 goes on and says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. None but God can restore the joy of salvation when we've lost it. It's only God. 
We can try other things, but it's only God that can restore the joy of salvation. Verse 13 changes a bit. Then he says, when all that's done, then he says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David's resolving now to live differently. He's resolving now that, okay, God, when you cleanse me, I'm going to be telling others about you. And, he, and he's going, in fact, I'm going to live a life where sinners are going to be converted to you. And, and Psalm 51 is actually the fulfilment of that verse. Because I, I wonder how many people have prayed Psalm 51. I wonder how many people have found comfort in Psalm 51. I wonder how many people have worshipped to Psalm 51. If you've been around Pentecostal churches for any length of time, we all know the song, Creating Me a Clean Heart. Don't we? Someone singing? There we go. Verse 14 and 15, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Here's a great quote. It's not mine. I found it. A great sinner pardoned makes a great singer. A great sinner pardoned makes a great singer. It's that restoring of joy and salvation. Once you know the depths of depravity, once you know the depths of your sin and you've got a glimpse of how bad you are and how separated you are from God, when you come through the blood of Jesus and you come to a place of being cleansed and, and you, 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 you have a sense of your innocence and a sense of walking in the presence of God, once you know that, there's a song in your heart that no one can ever take. David certainly continued to be a great singer as he continued to write psalms. Verse 16 and 17, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These are God you will not despise. See, there was, there was no particular sacrifices for the sin of adultery or for the, for the sin of murder. And David had committed both. So David was saying, hey, there's no point about this. You don't desire sacrifice or else I'd give it. There's no sacrifice, which again goes back to the reason why David had to appeal to the mercies of God. Because in, in, by Mosaic law, David should have been killed. So he's throwing himself on the mercies of God because there's no sacrifice to take away sin. Now, isn't, isn't that amazing? that we live in an era where there is a sacrifice that takes away all sin and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Imagine just for a moment the horror that David was living through. If the blood of Jesus, just think for a moment, imagine there was a list in the Bible of all the sins that the blood of Jesus covered. And then over the page there was a list of all the sins that the blood of Jesus was unable to cover. And imagine you committed one of those sins. And you knew there was no sacrifice. That's what David was faced with here. He committed these two sins 
and realized there was no sacrifice to cover, to atone. There was no scapegoat. They used to get a goat and they, the priest would put his hands on the goat and the, the, in the spirit, the, the sins of the nation would be transferred onto the goat and then the goat would be set free as a symbolic way of taking the sins away from the children of Israel. That's where you get the term scapegoat from. If somebody's a scapegoat, they, they kind of take the fall, they take the sin, they take the offence. But David's looking at his life and he's saying that there's no sacrifice here for me. I think of the sins that I've committed in my life. I'm so thankful that the blood of Jesus covers them all. So thankful. Because again, imagine if there was a list where the blood of Jesus kind of got this far, but, but the, the list, like if you speed through the Clem Jones tunnel, you are done, man. That's, that's it. One of the drivers in our family would be in trouble. <laughs> I am not pointing any fingers. <laughs> but thankfully, there's no list. The blood of Jesus covers everything. Verse 18 and 19, as the muse has come up, be good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. David is expressing passion here for Zion. He's feeling that he's forgiven now, and he's returning back to his passion for the things of God and the kingdom of heaven. I want to give you some homework. We put that next one up on the screen. Here's your homework for this week. Get your, get your phones out and take a snap of the screen. I want you to read through, read through some of the more well... I'll, sit, I'll just sit down and keep talking. Uh, and so you get a, get a, picture, of, get a picture of Brian. <laughs> oh, no, he's, yeah, he's, he's wanting pizza. Um, so I want you to go through these kind of prayers of kind of more well-known prayers in the Bible, and I'm going to be touching on some of them, not all of them, uh, over the next over the next few weeks. Everyone's got that? Great, fantastic. Church is finished now for the for the day. Uh, so stay and have some food and fellowship in Cafe Esperanza. We're going to go out. We're going to sing this just one more time. But thanks for coming to church. Make sure you stay have some fellowship and food. Awesome, and see you next Sunday. Hope you enjoyed that message. Join us next week as Pastor Peter continues his sermon series, The Power of Prayer.